Ladies and gentlemen, the captain has turned on the fasten seatbelt sign. If you haven't already done so, please make sure the volume of this podcast is set perfectly to your listening enjoyment. Please take your seat, whether that's on the treadmill, car, sofa, or bed, and buckle in for the last trip. My name is Jamie Beebe, and I'll be your tour guide, recreating someone's last days in paradise. On behalf of myself and everyone behind the scenes, please enjoy the last trip podcast. And because nobody likes a long flight to get to where they want to be, let's prepare for takeoff. Our victim today is Tiffin Varone, a 36-year-old woman from France who was vacationing in Nikko, Japan, when she mysteriously vanished. Tiffin ate breakfast at the Turtle Inn on July 28, 2018. After breakfast, she walked out of the hotel and vanished. Japanese police say there was an accident, but her family is convinced something more sinister happened. Let's dive in and see what you guys think. Nikko is a gorgeous tourist destination just north of Tokyo. It's known for its culture, history, and the Nikko National Park. The easiest way to get to Nikko is by train. It's a two-hour ride from Tokyo and leaves about once an hour because it's a popular day trip to see the temples on the park. Nikko National Park is less than a half-hour drive from the center of town. It was established in 1934 and covers about 442 square miles of gorgeous landscape, including the Nikko Mountain Range with Lake Chuzenji high up in the mountains formed by the eruption of Mount Nantai. Kagan Falls is one of Japan's three highest waterfalls at 318 feet, and it flows from Lake Chuzenji. Another waterfall near the lake is Ryuzu Falls, which translates to dragon head because it resembles the forked tail of a dragon, and that one is about 164 feet high. There are clear and well-maintained wooden boardwalk trails all through the forests and marshlands, as well as along the shores of the lakes and observation decks for the waterfalls. It's a great place to visit. People go to see cherry blossoms in the spring, lush greenery in the summer, bright fall leaves in autumn, and it transforms into a winter wonderland by the end of the year. A couple months after Tiffin disappeared, the autumn leaves would have begun and brought literally millions of people to Nikko. It's probably the most famous place to see the fall leaves in Japan. The main hikes have traffic jams of people enjoying the colors, and even obscure hiking trails can become congested. There's food vendors, parking lots throughout the area, and you won't go far without running into other hikers or fishermen. The park was too far to walk from where Tiffin was last seen, but public transportation is quick and easy. If she made it to the park, her body would have been found by the end of autumn with all the tourists there. The charming town of Nikko was founded in the 8th century as a sacred site associated with Buddhist practices. And the name Nikko comes from the Japanese word meaning sunshine or sunlight, which tells you how beautiful it is there. One of the most iconic shrines in Japan is the Toshogo Shrine in Nikko, built in 1617 after the death of Tokugawa Ieyasu. The architecture is gorgeous. There's a five-story pagoda, elaborate carvings, sculptures, and it's covered in art. It's breathtaking to see in person. Tokugawa Ieyasu was a Japanese military leader who founded Tokugawa Shogunate, which was the government that ruled over Japan from 1603 to 1868. This government pursued a policy called Sekoku, which translates to closed country, meaning foreign influence and trade was restricted to maintain internal stability and control. In 1999, the Toshogu Shrine, along with some other buildings in Nikko, were designated as a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Nikko covers a fairly large area, with the eastern side being the city and the western side is covered in mountainous terrain. 
Tiffin was staying at Turtle Inn, which is an easy 15-minute walk along the Daya River into the sacred Shinkyo Bridge, which is the entrance to the Toshoku Shrine. The Shinkyo Bridge is considered to be among Japan's three greatest bridges. It was believed to have been originally built in the year 766 by a Buddhist monk and then reconstructed in 1636. And at first, only important officials were granted access to cross the bridge until it was opened to the public in 1973, and now for a small entrance fee, anyone can walk across it. While the shrine might be the most popular landmark near Turtle Inn, there were a lot of other places to visit. One place Tiffin planned to go, and I know I'd visit, is the Kanmanga Fuchi Abyss right along the Daya River, about a 10-minute walk from Turtle Inn. Along the riverbank is a row of stone statues called Jiso. The statues are said to represent the souls of deceased children, which could sound a little creepy for some people. There are a few mysteries surrounding these statues, one being that no one knows how many there actually are because every time you count them, you come up with a different number. The trail along the abyss takes about two and a half hours, and although I read it was a peaceful walk, I also read one review that said to watch for Asian black bears and blood-sucking land leeches. So I guess enter at your own risk. A 20-minute car or train ride from Turtle Inn is the abandoned Western Village. It's a theme park opened in 1973 that was inspired by classic American and Italian Western movies, specifically Westworld starring Yul Brynner. It closed in 2007 because of competition from other theme parks like Disneyland, but it's still there and it's a mecca for explorers who like to see creepy weird things. I would definitely stop by. There's a main street straight out of a western, a replica of Mount Rushmore, a general store, barbershop, church, sheriff station with a prison, and a saloon full of scary looking characters. And if that's not weird enough, there's big robot teddy bears and people who look like John Wayne and Clint Eastwood staring at you from every corner. And a tip if you're headed that way, the front of the park has been boarded up, but there are several other entrances in the back, so people can wander through whenever they want. A more mainstream landmark to visit is Cedar Avenue located by the Toshogu Shrine. It's listed in the Guinness Book of World Records as the longest tree-line avenue in the world. After the death of Tokugawa Ieyasu, a samurai lord began planting cryptomeria trees to honor him and continued planting them for over 20 years until his death. So by 1648, 15,000 trees had been planted. Today, there are a little over 12,000 left because of vehicle exhaust emissions and development, so an average of 100 trees die each year. If we keep going in that direction, they'll all be gone in about 100 years. There's also Tobu World Square, another theme park that has miniature replicas of famous landmarks and buildings from around the world, like the Eiffel Tower, Pyramids of Egypt, and the Taj Mahal. Accommodations in Nikko span all varieties and budgets. Some people opt for a hotel or resort, but to really experience the culture in the city, you can choose from Ryokan, Minshuku, or Pension. A Ryokan is a traditional Japanese-style inn with Japanese-style rooms. It typically includes dinner and breakfast and gives the most traditional Japanese lifestyle experience. A minshuku is a Japanese-style bed and breakfast, and they're usually family-run and offer Japanese rooms with a meal or two included in the price. A pension is a lot like the minshuku, except they offer Western-style rooms, and they're found throughout the mountain resort towns and the countryside. One other option is a love hotel, which is kind of a short-stay hotel designed for couples seeking privacy. If you're from the U.S., you're probably imagining a seedy no-tell motel type of thing, but it's a lot different in Japan. It's nothing illicit or scandalous, but rather a cultural norm for couples that just need that privacy. 
They're more like a super romantic spot to go for a few hours. They have theme rooms with elaborate decorations. There might be a jacuzzi in the room, some mood lighting, and sometimes even costumes to go with the theme of the room. The Turtle Inn is a small hotel that feels more like a pension with a mix of Japanese and Western-style rooms. It's very plain on the outside, with just a small sign over the door and a window full of turtle figurines. Inside, it's warm and cozy with comfortable accommodations and shared bathrooms. The front desk staff speaks English, and they provide maps, recommendations for your stay. Tiffin's room was on the first floor, and she was the only tourist staying on that floor. But there are also two hot spring baths on that floor that can comfortably fit two to three people at a time if you want a long soak after a day of sightseeing. There's also a small lounge with a vending machine and couches. You can get breakfast added into your room fee, which includes toast with jam, juice, coffee, and tea. The rates average around $100 a night, depending on the time of year. In reading the reviews, most were five stars, saying that the hotel is very well-maintained and welcoming with a friendly staff. A few mentioned that the streets around the hotel can become quite dark and scary at night due to the lack of lighting and the fact the hotel is actually quite far from shops and restaurants. Other reviews said the walls of the rooms were extremely thin, so you could hear everything going on. And there were a couple one-star reviews that said not to stay there until the hotel speaks up about what happened to Tiffin. There are a lot of people out there that think the hotel or someone at the hotel had something to do with her disappearance. And we'll get to that shortly. According to statistics, the average person walks past 36 murderers in their lifetime. Oh my god, she was murdered. It was a murder? Unlike in Hollywood movies, they're not easy to spot. Where is she, buddy? Where is she? The devil made me turn her into ashes. They seamlessly blend into our everyday lives, assuming roles as friendly neighbors, helpful colleagues, or even the person lying beside you each night. I wanted to be out of jail. I couldn't wait till I got out. I was in there with someone who was clearly psychopathic. Using investigative research and primary audio, Morbidology is an award-winning true crime podcast that shines a light on the darkest corners of humanity. Through our investigation, we have attained evidence, which we are not releasing at this time, which leads us to believe Jolene is not alive. Tune in to Morbidology each week across all podcast platforms. Tiffin was born on July 22, 1982, and grew up in Poitiers, France. Poitiers is a great town in west-central France that has narrow medieval streets, charming squares, and timber-framed houses. It's also home to the University of Poitiers, which is one of the oldest universities in Europe. Tiffin was a cheerful type of person who people sometimes saw as a bit eccentric. She was extremely intelligent, speaking several languages, including Russian and Japanese. She studied art history, loved all types of literature, art, cinema, and music. And she had an artistic side. She'd been doing drawings since she was a little girl. The other side of Tiffin was more introverted. She could be sensitive and shy, but her kindness always showed through. Her caring and compassion were evident because she worked as a special needs teaching assistant. She was loved by her family, her coworkers, and her students. Tiffin was extremely close to her family, regularly seeing them and checking in with them. She had two brothers, Damien and Stanislas, and his sister, Sybil. At the age of 20, Tiffin was diagnosed with epilepsy. At first, the disease didn't respond to any treatment, and she was suffering serious health issues because of it. She would have regular epileptic seizures that caused her to faint. But by 2016, they were able to get it under control, and she was receiving treatment that stabilized it perfectly and allowed her to have a happy, normal life. 
In fact, her colleagues at the school where she worked didn't even know she suffered from epilepsy until it was mentioned in the media after her disappearance. Her passions were traveling and experiencing new cultures. She was especially intrigued by the Japanese culture and way of life, having traveled to Japan once before. Whenever she traveled, she was very organized with a planned itinerary that included all the sites she wanted to see, and she had quite a list of temples and landmarks throughout Japan that she was excited to experience. She also kept in constant contact with her family, sending regular and frequent messages and photos through her family group chats on WhatsApp. She loved including them on her travels by sharing her experiences as they happened. Tiffin spent months meticulously planning her three-week vacation to take place from July 27th to August 15th when she was scheduled to return back to France. Her plans included Tokyo, Nikko, Tohoku, and Kyoto. Which brings us to the question, what happened to Tiffin Barone? Tiffin flew into Narita International Airport on July 27, 2018 and spent her first night in Tokyo. On July 28, she took the two-hour train to Nikko, arriving in the early afternoon. CCTV footage caught her getting off the train and walking to the Turtle Inn from there. It was summer, which is not great for walking because of the heat, but it was raining that day, so she decided to take the quick 10-minute trek to her hotel. As she walked to the Turtle Inn, she made frequent stops to take photos even though she was carrying her suitcase, which was a pinkish-red roller bag. She sent several of these photos and messages to her family and friends on WhatsApp, even mentioning that she was bummed she'd have to wait to visit the temples because of the rain. One of her last messages said, I arrived, it's raining, but tomorrow it's nice. One of the last photos she sent to her brother that day was of the Shinkyo Bridge in Nikko. She got to the Turtle Inn around 4 p.m. that afternoon and checked in for two nights. There's no record of what she did that evening, but I'm guessing she either had dinner at the hotel or ventured out to the shops and restaurants near the Shinkyo Bridge for a bite to eat. I know when I travel solo, I rarely go out at night because I want to get up early and explore all day, and I'm guessing she was the same way. The day Tiffin went missing, July 29th, the rain had stopped. She got up, left her room around 8.30 in the morning, went to the dining area of the hotel for breakfast, she exchanged a few words with a German couple and a French couple nearby. Just a quick chat about the day, the weather, normal things. There was also a Japanese person staying at the hotel that happened to snap a photo. Later, she realized Tiffin was in the background. As far as we know, this is the very last confirmed photo and sighting of Tiffin. The manager of the inn testified that she left the hotel at 10 a.m. to sightsee as she had planned for the day. He said as she was leaving, he told her to be careful which, knowing what we know now, are very ominous words. He said she left on foot but wasn't dressed for a full hike. She was just in casual clothes carrying a small shoulder bag that contained her wallet, phone, and possibly a laptop. But here's where things start to get a little weird. The manager of the hotel said she left at 10 a.m., but her phone was logged into the hotel's Wi-Fi until 11.40 a.m. There are any number of reasons for this. Maybe the hotel manager was just wrong about the time. Maybe she did leave at 10, but forgot her phone, went back to get it, left again at 11.40 without anyone seeing her the second time. Or maybe she never left the hotel at all. Or maybe she left the hotel but stayed within reach of the Wi-Fi. Whatever the reason, there was never another confirmed sighting of Tiffin after eating breakfast at the Turtle Inn on July 29th. Her family didn't receive any contact from her at all that day, so they were concerned immediately. On July 30th, the manager of the hotel noticed that Tiffin hadn't checked out. Her luggage and all her things, including her epilepsy medicine and passport, were still in her room, as well as a note that listed all the places in the area she wanted to visit. 
which I thought was strange because if I was going out sightseeing for the day, I would have taken the list with me. The only things missing were what she had with her at breakfast the day before. The manager packed all her things up from her room and at 11 a.m. informed the police that Tiffin was missing. I think it's kind of odd that he packed up her things and reported her missing so fast, but it is better to act fast with a missing person's case. On August 1st, the French embassy in Japan notified Tiffin's family. Her family called all of the hospitals, thinking maybe she was hurt, but no one had a foreigner matching Tiffin's description. Nico police brought up the possibility of it being a kidnapping, which sounded the alarms. Both of her brothers and her sister went to Japan immediately to help search for Tiffin. They arrived on August 4th, with their mother Anne joining them just a few days later. When they got there, the Nico police picked them up from the airport, took them to a tourist spot near the river, showed them a scarf they found, said it belonged to Tiffin, and that she had fallen into the river trying to pick it up. They told the family it was an accident and there would be no search, and that they should take her suitcase and go home. This is a totally different scenario than they were told on the phone, and police had no evidence to back any of this up. The family said it was not Tiffin's scarf, there were no witnesses, there was no body, and they don't even know if she was by the river that day. There was no way her family was just going to take her suitcase and go home. They had every intention of finding out what really happened and where Tiffin was. So they alerted the media and started the investigation themselves. Right away, they poked holes in all the theories the police had given them. First of all, police told them the river had been raging out of control that day because of the rain the day before. But when they researched it, the river wasn't at all near dangerous level. So if she had fallen in and drowned, her body would have been found. Also, they said she fell in close to the Shinkyo Bridge. But if that's the case, there would have been a witness because the bridge had tourists on it all day. Tourists were taking photos around the bridge, so if she was there, she could have been caught in the background, but no one came forward. And there were CCTV cameras all over the area, but none of them picked her up. Police also didn't look at the possibility that she left the area. The train station was only a 5-10 to 10 minute walk from the hotel, and from there, she could have gone anywhere. There was also a bus stop right next to the hotel that would have taken her to Lake Chuzenji, which was on Tiffin's list of places to visit in Nikko. On top of all that, if the bus stop was close enough to the hotel and she was waiting for the bus, that could be the reason she was logged into the hotel's Wi-Fi until 11.40 a.m. Of course, they didn't get her phone records until later in the investigation and still haven't been able to get all of her phone records because of Japan's strict privacy laws. Tiffin's family stayed in Japan and searched diligently for her. But by now, many of the tourists who could have been witnesses had left the area. Most people go to Nikko for a day trip or at most two days just to visit points of interest. They don't pay much attention to other tourists, so they might not even realize they'd seen Tiffin. Because by the time the media got a hold of the story, they were long gone. Her family combed through the town looking for clues. They had a list of places she wanted to see, and they searched everywhere. Nico has a lot of small roads leading to dead ends, private parking lots, hiking trails. Everything was searched, but there was no sign of Tiffin. On August 10th, police and rescuers stepped up their efforts. 80 searchers were deployed searching for Tiffin. They had gotten a report from a male tourist in his 70s, a mountain climber, that said he crossed paths with a foreign woman who was dressed casually and walking alone on a mountain trail between Mount Nakimushi and Kanmangafuchi Abyss on the afternoon she vanished. So that's where they concentrated their search. He said he was surprised to see her because of the typhoon, saying, I did not think there were climbers other than myself due to the typhoon, so she left an impression and I remembered it. But there are a couple things that bother me about this sighting. For one, she wasn't dressed for a hike like that. 
Also, in one statement I read, he said she was wearing a dress, but she didn't leave the hotel in a dress. Also, the statement he gave wasn't very detailed. How close was he? Did he get a good look at her? Did they speak at all? What direction was she going? One of the complaints Tiffin's family had about the Japanese police was that they didn't get many details and didn't really question any witnesses or people at the hotel. And that seems to be the case with this witness too. The Kanmangafuchi Abyss was on Tiffin's list of places to visit, so it's entirely possible she was there. It's about a two-hour trek between those two places, and half of it is along the Daya River. The part along the river runs through the town, and then when it turns off to go to Mount Nakimushi, the terrain is rugged and dense, but there are well-marked and maintained trails. Much of it is a fairly well-traveled path, and there are also stops and landmarks along the way, like the Onsen Hot Springs, so it's unusual that no one else came forward to say they saw her. The search involved helicopters, police dogs, drones, and many locals came out to help. But guys, this huge search turned up zero clues. On August 13th, the police finally took the opportunity to examine Tiffin's hotel room. And they actually invited her brother Damien to go with them. That would never happen in the United States. A family member witnessing and overseeing the investigation at a potential crime scene? No. Police sprayed the room with luminol to check for blood, and there was a large mark on the wall and spots on the bed that showed up. Damien said, On the wall, the very large, impressive splatters started from the bottom with a narrowing towards the base before spreading upwards, the highest point corresponding to my height. My impression of the blue splashes was that the point of impact came from below, as the spray was denser at the base and more scattered at the top. I also remembered that the policemen seemed surprised that these marks appeared. On the group of small dots that appeared on the bed, an officer performed a verification test. That is, they poured a liquid contained in a test tube over the blue spots on the bed. They concluded that it wasn't blood because the color didn't turn pink. The police officer was embarrassed to explain to me that it was probably a chemical reaction and not blood. On the other hand, no explanation was given for the wall and no test of the wall was done in front of me. And in fact, no samples were taken from the scene and nothing was sent to the laboratory for analysis. On August 21st, local police did another search, this time in and around the Daya River near Turtle Inn. They brought a team of 20 searchers, some in wetsuits, but again, not a single clue was found. Then, on August 30th at 10.30 a.m., a worker cutting grass along the railway in Nikko tipped off police after finding a human skull on the tracks in the Kamimori area. But they soon found out the skull had been there for a while and had already turned skeletal, so it wasn't Tiffin. What's interesting, though, is that this is just one of several body parts that were found in and around Nikko while they searched for Tiffin. And no one seemed to think it was that big of a deal. Japan relies heavily on being a really safe place for tourists, so I think they have a tendency to sweep things like this under the rug for the media. By September, the family was starting to question what the local police were actually doing to find Tiffin. Police were pushing the narrative that there was an accident, but not giving any reasons as to why they hadn't found her body yet. Her family was convinced she was the victim of foul play, so they basically had to carry the investigation along on their own. They wanted France to get involved in helping the search because Japan wasn't doing enough. And on September 14th, an official preliminary investigation on the charges of kidnapping and unlawful confinement was initiated in France. The goal was to keep the investigation open and not just rule it as an accident and forget about it. On October 26th, almost three months after Tiffin went missing, police conducted another large-scale search with over 60 people, drones, and dogs. They combed a five-kilometer stretch along the river, searched forests nearby, neighborhoods, and searched around the hotel. Again, not a single clue was found. 
On November 10th, an organized march and protest of more than 500 people took place in Poitiers. France was missing one of their own, and they wanted answers. At the end of 2018, Damien and Sybil traveled back to Japan again, where they met with police and the French embassy, but the investigation had stalled and there were no answers. They went back in March of 2019 and methodically hung and handed out missing person flyers throughout Nikko, the train stations, bus stops, and nearby towns. By May of 2019, France stepped in and asked for the case files along with her cell phone data, something they'd been trying to get their hands on for months. They did finally get the case files, but there was very little information and what was there was lacking any details. Tiffin's family hired their own expert crew and another search mission was carried out with mountain rescue experts, but they still came back empty-handed. After this search, the family officially declared they did not believe Tiffin was involved in any type of an accident. They told the media that the interrogations carried out by Japanese police were incomplete and contradictory to what they thought actually happened around the time Tiffin left the hotel. The Verones had gotten the founder of Tiffin's phone company to help them get at least some of her data. Using her Google Maps data and her GPS points, they tracked her locations from when she set foot in Japan up until 11.40 a.m. on the day she went missing because that's the last time she was connected to Wi-Fi. The other thing they were able to learn was that in the early evening of July 29th, her phone was disabled forcefully, meaning the battery was taken out or the phone was destroyed somehow, rather than just being turned off or running out of batteries. This totally substantiated their claims of foul play. Also, in retracing her steps, her family noticed some sketchy things happening in the areas she was planning to visit. One place she planned to visit the day she went missing was the Takino Shrine. It's a really quiet spot in a less populated area where people go to pray for a successful marriage, pregnancy, or birth, and some people come in search of just more general luck. According to legend, if you throw a coin through the small hole on top of the Tori Gate at the entrance, you'll be blessed with good fortune. But you only get three tries, so aim carefully. When her family went, there was a warning sign about a fake guide who was trying to convince women to go with him. The sign was only in Japanese, and Tiffin did speak Japanese, although I'm not sure if she could read it. The sign said, be careful, there is someone here who approaches women, with another one reporting frequent incidents. Now this is normal in some parts of the world, but a warning sign like this is really rare in Japan. It's hard to believe it would be just a coincidence. Some sources also said women had been assaulted there by this person. When the Verones asked the police about it, they would only say the person from the signs was not in Nico at that time. Her family had serious questions about this person because they think Tiffin would have gone with someone pretending to be a tour guide. Japan is known as one of the safest countries in the world, and they knew her guard was down. Also, after Tiffin's disappearance, a man tried to abduct two women near the hotel who managed to escape. The family was starting to realize Japan was not as safe as they thought. On the one-year anniversary of Tiffin's disappearance, her family again went back and conducted another search. They went back to all the tourist spots, the river, around the hotel, with five volunteers and seven dogs from Japan Rescue Dog Company that were trained to find bodies. But they turned up nothing again. Because they searched so extensively so many times and found absolutely nothing, Tiffin's family felt she'd been abducted and was maybe still alive. In July of 2020, two years after her disappearance, the French justice minister took over the case and the investigation currently remains open and active in France for kidnapping and forced confinement in the support of the family. Tiffin's family has never slowed down their search. 
In late 2020, they hired a famous private investigator who was behind the arrest of the French serial killer Francis Holm to search for clues, but unfortunately, he hasn't found any answers yet. In 2022, the Rouen family published a book titled Tiffin, Where Are You? to express their difficulties in dealing with Japan's judicial system. Written during the worldwide COVID lockdowns, it was the most they could do to find her while they were stuck in France. On July 29, 2023, the fifth anniversary of Tiffin's disappearance, her brother Damien held a press conference to continue keeping her on people's minds. He thanked the Japanese people that opened up their homes to him and were helpful in the search. He said, we won't give up. We need answers. To this day, they are still searching and trying to get her cell phone data from Japan and any other information they can about the case. In April, the UN Committee on Enforced Disappearances urged Japan to enhance cooperation with French authorities, basically asking Japan to let France help in the investigation. The problem is that Japan police think her disappearance is the result of her accidentally falling in the river and drowning, so they don't have a criminal case open. But her family and French authorities believe she was kidnapped. What happened to Tiffin Verone? With no clues to go on, there are a lot of theories in this case, but only two main options, accident or criminal. Japanese police think there was an accident, either somewhere in the forest or in the river. It did rain the day before she went missing and hiking trails were slippery. She could have fallen and injured herself with no way to get help. She could have had a seizure and never made it out of the forest. The problem with this theory is that they searched the forest repeatedly with dogs and mountain rescue teams. If she was in there, they would have found some kind of sign. Also, the paths were easy to follow and well-maintained. She's not the type of person to go wandering off the path, especially because she wasn't dressed for a strenuous hike. The other option the Japanese police explored was drowning in the river. They said the river was swollen from the rains and the typhoon, so her body might never be found. The problem with that, according to data collected, the rains didn't actually increase the water level at all. And the river wasn't moving fast the day she went missing. Also, the entire length of the river is popular with fishermen and tourists. There are a lot of people constantly surrounding the river. She went missing in broad daylight in a popular place, so it would be a miracle no one saw her fall in. And her body would have turned up by now if she was in the river. Not only that, they had divers and people in wetsuits searching the river multiple times, and again, not a single clue was found. Tiffin's family is sure she met with foul play. And while I agree, it infinitely opens up the possibilities of what happened. First, we have the warning signs at the Takino Shrine. It was on Tiffin's list of places to go, and it was a fairly deserted area. It's not one of the main shrines or temples that most tourists go to. By all accounts, her guard was probably down, and her family thinks if a Japanese man approached her pretending to be a guide, she'd likely go with him. Japanese police didn't look into it and only told the family the person was gone. They didn't offer up any evidence of that and, by all accounts, didn't even question this person. People who commit crimes like this don't stop until they're caught and put away. It's entirely possible the perpetrator saw Tiffin, escalated, and killed her, then hid her body somewhere she'd never be found or even kidnapped her and is still holding her. There was also a rumor of an unstable man attacking tourists near the Kenmanga Fuchi Abyss. While it's only a rumor, rumors often start from somewhere. The abyss was on her list of places to visit that day as well, and there was the unconfirmed sighting of her near there from the mountain climber. Beyond that, there are bad people everywhere that will randomly take a crime of opportunity. She could have been hiking along an isolated path and come across someone who wanted to kidnap or kill her. I'm not sure many have considered this to be the work of a serial killer, but several other bodies and body parts have been found in Nico since Tiffin vanished. 
a decomposed head, a body in the river, a dismembered woman, and body parts in a suitcase. Surprisingly, the World Atlas ranks Japan as fourth in the world for countries with the most serial killers. And before you run and Google it, the United States takes first place by a landslide, followed distantly by Russia and the UK. Because of the number of bodies found and the number of serial killers in Japan, it could also give the impression of more than one serial killer operating in the area. Tiffin becoming a victim of a serial killer can't be excluded, but I think it's unlikely because serial killers cycle and repeat themselves, so I think we would have seen similar disappearances in the years since. Tiffin's family has zeroed in on the Turtle Inn, and for good reason. It was the last place she was seen. Her phone was still logged into the hotel Wi-Fi after the manager said she left, and luminol tests showed traces of what was likely blood on the wall and bed. Maybe she never left the hotel that day. Maybe she saw the manager, she realized she forgot something in her room, possibly her list of places to visit, so she went back and someone followed her, killing her. The walls were thin, but she was the only one staying in that part of the hotel. What if she had an accident in her room? The hotel manager saw her leave at 10 a.m., but she went back to her room unnoticed. Had a seizure, hit her head, or bit her tongue, which caused the blood splatter. The hotel manager went to clean the room later, found her, didn't know what to do, or was embarrassed or worried about the reputation of the hotel with a dead tourist. So he disposed of her body, cleaned the walls, broke and disposed of her phone, and the next day called the cops to report her missing. It's possible. Kidnapping is another theory favored by Tiffin's family. In fact, they think she might be detained somewhere, still alive, and waiting to be found. She disappeared without a trace, and her phone was turned off in some type of unnatural way. The police turned this theory down because they said they checked if someone suspicious started buying feminine products for no reason, and they didn't find anyone. Although, I'm pretty sure there are many other ways to look for a kidnapper. But I do think it would be difficult for her to have been kidnapped. She went missing in broad daylight, possibly while hiking. It would be really hard to get someone struggling or possibly unconscious back to their vehicle from a hiking trail without being seen. And it's almost impossible to get a gun in Japan. So that limits the options on how to force her to be quiet and go with the kidnapper. She would have fought back. So if she was kidnapped, it was either well-planned or they had more than one kidnapper. Either way, it would be extremely bold and risky, but not impossible. Between the two options of accident or criminal, I think with the time that has passed, it's more likely to be criminal. After everything I've told you, is Japan safe? My answer is yes, Japan is extremely safe. The World Population Review ranks Japan as the ninth safest country in the world in 2022. For context, the United States ranked 129th. For starters, Japan has one of the strictest gun control policies in the world. The availability of firearms is heavily restricted, and it's almost impossible to even get guns illegally. Of course, there are other weapons readily available, and in recent years, there have been several mass stabbings and arsons. But again, for context, the U.S. averages more than two mass murders a day, and Japan has had about 15 mass murders in the last 20 years. Japanese society places a strong emphasis on social harmony, collective responsibility, and group cohesion. The cultural values of respect, politeness, and consideration for others is how they keep order and safety in public places. Community policing is an integral part of law enforcement in Japan. Police officers work closely with local communities, and that collaborative encourages community members to report suspicious activity. Also, the shame associated with criminal behavior in Japanese culture is a major deterrent. 
They don't want to bring dishonor to themselves or their family. Japan also has low levels of poverty and unemployment, so people are generally more secure and content. Their education system emphasizes moral values, discipline, and responsibility, with a focus on character development that has really low tolerance for criminal behavior. And finally, compared to most countries, Japan has lower rates of drug abuse and addiction. Guns, drugs, and poverty are huge factors in violent crime, and all of those are very rare in Japan. I spent some time in Tokyo by myself. I went out all hours of the day and night, rode public transportation, walked down deserted alleyways, and went to lots of bars. It never crossed my mind that I wasn't safe. But even though Japan feels safe and has a great reputation, you can't let your guard down. Accidents and crime can and will happen everywhere. Nikko is considered a very safe city. Pickpocketing and thefts are rare. The locals are helpful and respectful. Public transportation is clean and safe. There are very few homeless people. And street harassment is almost non existent. There are some basic Japanese customs and traditions that you should know before you go. Bowing is a common form of greeting and showing respect. The depth of the bow depends on the formality of the situation and the relationship of the people. It's customary to remove your shoes before entering homes, inns, and religious sites. Gift giving is an important cultural practice, so bring gifts if you go to someone's house, and when you present it, do so with both hands. Public spaces, including public transportation, waiting areas, are generally quiet. Speaking loud or playing music without your headphones is considered very impolite. And stay silent in elevators. People normally refrain from speaking in an elevator. Using your phone in public spaces or public transportation should be done discreetly and in silent mode. Japanese people are accustomed to forming orderly lines, whether waiting for public transportation or lines for attractions, so there's no cutting or pushing in line. Tipping is not common because exceptional service should be included in the overall cost. Also, go ahead and slurp your noodles because it signifies enjoyment. If you're visiting an onsen, which is a hot spring or hot bath where people relax and soak, remember that it's a very traditional Japanese experience. Before you enter, you must thoroughly clean and rinse yourself. And for all my tattooed friends, you might not be allowed to visit because tattoos are associated with the Yakuza and organized crime. You might have issues entering onsen, beaches, pools, or gyms. But they do have tattoo friendly alternatives that you can visit. And if you don't have too many, you can cover up your tattoos with foundation tape, which is applied over the tattoo like a sticker and it should last for about a week. Japan is prone to natural disasters like earthquakes, typhoons, and tsunamis. If there's an earthquake, drop to the ground, take cover under a sturdy piece of furniture or against an interior wall, and hold on until the earth stops shaking. Also, stay indoors. Don't run outside because of the risk of falling objects. If you're already outside, move to an open area away from buildings, streetlights, utility wires, or really anything else that could fall on you. And once the shaking stops, watch for aftershocks. Typhoons can bring strong winds, rains, and potential flooding, so stay inside and watch for weather updates. If there's a tsunami, which can happen after a big earthquake, don't wait for a warning because it might be too late. Immediately get away from the coast and move to higher ground. If you're hiking or in a forest, stay on designated paths and be aware of your surroundings. Most animals avoid humans. The Japanese sirau is a goat antelope native to Japan, and they're generally not dangerous, but can be protective and get aggressive if they feel threatened. There are occasional reports of Asian black bear sightings in the mountains around Nikko. Attacks are rare, but most people carry bells to avoid surprising them. 
snow monkeys inhabit the forest, but they're not typically aggressive. Wild boars are found in wooded areas and are generally shy, but can be aggressive if they feel threatened. And there are a few mythical creatures you'll want to avoid, although, according to legend, most aren't actually dangerous. The Tengu are a type of human bird creature that are super smart and know martial arts and can be troublemakers. The Kawa no Kami are river spirits that live in bodies of water. They aren't dangerous, but they'll get mad if their environment is disturbed or they feel disrespected. The Roku Rokubi are supernatural beings with really long necks. They look like humans during the day and then at night their necks extend and in some stories they drink human blood. The Jorogumo is a spider that can transform into a beautiful woman who captures and consumes humans. So maybe just stay off Tinder if you're in Japan. And then there's the Nopera bow, known as the faceless ghost. They aren't dangerous, but can be unsettling, probably because they don't have a face. But most of all, just remember, whenever you're traveling, always inform someone about your plans before going anywhere. Tell someone reliable where you're going and what you'll be doing and when to expect you back. And my number one tip to staying alive on vacation is to pay attention to your gut. If something doesn't feel right, it isn't. Tiffin Verone was a 36-year-old woman from France who went missing in Japan just two days into her dream vacation. She was last seen eating breakfast at the Turtle Inn Hotel in Nikko, Japan on July 29, 2018. And since then, there's not been a single clue to her whereabouts. She is white with short brown hair, a medium build, and green or light brown eyes. She was wearing a small pattern top that was white with pink dots, beige Bermuda shorts, light pink pattern cloth tennis shoes, a blue rain poncho, and carrying a small shoulder bag. Her cell phone is also missing and was in a cell phone wallet case. Her family is actively searching for her, and they deserve answers. If you have any information, please contact the Nico Police Station at 0288530110 or email missing.tiffinverone at gmail.com, and that's missing.tiphainevero.n at gmail.com. And finally, remember to leave a review and rate this podcast five stars if you like the show, or hell, even if you don't. But either way, feel free to let me know what you think. Please follow The Last Trip on Instagram at The Last Trip Crime Pod, and subscribe on Patreon to support the show. You'll get extra research, videos, photos, and updates and even learn more about my personal travels. That's patreon.com slash thelasttrippodcast. I'm Jamie Beebe, bringing you your last trip and signing off until the next one. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>